Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Our Christian hope, you know, is ultimately fixed upon heaven. It's fixed upon a new earth, and it is fixed. It's on something that's yet to come. It hasn't happened yet, but it's definite. It's certain. It's kind of like when you read in the Old Testament where God had promised that he would give to Israel the land of Canaan. And very often he says, enter into the land that I have given you. Because it was so certain that they would have that land that he could speak of it as if it had already happened. And you know, you've probably heard the teaching that Christian hope is like that. It's not just an optimistic outlook or wish fulfillment. Our hope is a certain thing. We definitely know that only because of Christ, His blood, His resurrection on our behalf, because of that, we will be in a future paradise. We have an assurance of things hoped for. But there is another kind of hope in the Christian life. This is not the certain Christian hope in absolutes that we know will be ours. But there's another kind of hope. It's almost a hopefulness in things that we are not guaranteed, but that God can do. So when we're hoping in the future resurrection of our bodies, that's guaranteed. But when you have your neighbor, let's say Toby, if you have a neighbor Toby, I don't know him, I'm just making that up, but let's say your neighbor's Toby, and you want him to know Christ, you are hopeful, you've shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, you've prayed for him, you want him to know Christ, can you take that hope as a certain Christian hope that Toby, with no doubts, will come to know Christ? No, we know there's a Lamb's Book of Life. We don't know the contents. We don't have an absolute certainty about that. But does that mean, therefore, that we are fatalists? We just slouch our shoulders and say, well, nothing we can do for Toby. If God's going to save him, he's going to save him. Nothing we can do. No. We can't have that certain Christian hope in this case as in many cases. But we have a definite hopefulness about Toby or whatever the request is that's not guaranteed you in the scriptures about health, about whatever. We have a hopefulness. Why? Because although you're not promised that God will give you those things you're longing for, you know that the God you pray to can. He can. God in a moment can save Toby. Because there is a can, there is for us as we pray, as we hope, there is a hopefulness. It's not an impossibility. Not at all so long as Toby lives on this earth. It is not an impossibility. What that should leave us with as Christians is although we don't have promises of Toby's salvation or of healing or etc., we have promises that we have a God on our side who loves us, who's redeemed us by the blood of His own Son, who can do all kinds of good things in our life. And He delights to do them. 
that doesn't make us fatalistic. That makes us hopeful about all the things God can do. And what are all the things God can do? They're just all the things. <laughs> Literally, you could do anything. Some of you right now have family estranged from you. And maybe you've given up because you've tried to reconcile, you've tried to make that work out, and it's not working out. And you've just thought, that's the end of that. Maybe. And maybe not. God, who in a moment can change hearts entirely, and you can't be reconciled with your family, not a chance. So there is a hopefulness. Part of the love we have even for our enemies is that we're hopeful for them. As long as someone is alive, as far as we're concerned, there is hope for that person. I understand discussions about the unpardonable sin. I don't know what it is. Do you know what it is? Probably not. Not in detail. I don't know at least who's committed it. As long as a person is breathing, as long as a person is alive, I feel a hopefulness for that person. So there are times we have to do difficult things. You might have an uncle in your family addicted, heavily addicted to drugs, and you have to make those hard choices of distancing your children from that uncle. That's hard. You know, in this church, at times we practice church discipline for someone who is locked into a sin. That's hard. But that in no way negates the hopefulness that we feel. Hopefulness for that uncle. Is there hope for him? If there's a God in heaven, there's hope for him. Hopefulness when church discipline happens. Is there hope there? Of course there's hope there. That is why God is a God of all hope. So no, there are many things in life that you hope will happen, but you can't have that Christian definite hope, but you can always have a hopefulness. And that is true, especially in relationships that sour. And that is what we're talking about today because it's where our text is today. Because the Apostle Paul was no stranger to estrangement in relationships. When he first found the Galatians, studying the letter he wrote to them, when he first encountered them, came up from a place called Pamphylia into their towns and shared the gospel with them, he was very sick in body. And yet they received him, as we'll see, embraced him, loved him. He loved them there was such an affection and a closeness in their relationship with each other. Then he leaves, and after some years, they don't like him. Because false teaching Judaizers had come in, and Paul's gospel hadn't changed, but had changed the minds of the Galatians. Paul understood estrangement, and his response to that was desperate hopefulness and not despair. Let's look at that. We had seen at the end of last week's passage in verse 11, this is not a definite hope he has of the Galatians' repentance because he said, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. It's not guaranteed they'll be delivered from the Judaizers in error, but he is hopeful. Look at this as we start in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, 
you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What we find in today's passage is actually the very first command in this whole letter. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's been no commands this entire letter till now. And the command is this, become as I am. Just as it happened in the Corinthian church, if you've ever studied 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Paul had come, shared the gospel, shared his life. Many had come to know Christ. He left, others came in after. For the Corinthians, it was these super apostles, and they wanted to discredit Paul. Said, yeah, he shared the gospel with you, but did you see how he's bow-legged, how he's weak, how he's contemptible? Maybe he has a unibrow, as tradition says. I don't know if that's true. He's contemptible in his appearance. He's not a super apostle in a nice suit and well put together. He's some short, lowly man. He gets sick. He gets beaten. He gets shipwrecked on the sea. And he's the one bringing you the one true message about God. So they cast that in doubt. And the Corinthians, you remember, by the time of 2 Corinthians, had turned against Paul. That's why that whole letter is an appeal about Paul being a true apostle. Galatians has been just the same thing. Paul appealing to them. I am a true apostle. You believed it when I was with you. But others came in later and changed your mind. They went from good terms to bad terms. Some of you have been surprised by just about the same experience. Sweetness and richness of relationship with those who love Christ or seem to love Christ. And there is a closeness. And then something happens. Or maybe you don't even see each other and something happens and there's a souring that takes place. That's what happened to Paul. That's what you experienced too. And I think partly for that reason, that's why God's given us this text of Scripture. To help us to know how to think about that and handle those kinds of situations. As we see it lived out in the Apostle Paul. So let's look at that. What I want to look at in this text, in keeping with the passage itself, is first, and this is the bulk of the passage, is the sweetness of their past relationship. And then secondly, the reason he shares that is because of the present sourness of their relationship. Sweetness in the past, sourness in the present. So let's look at the sweetness in the past. You can see it in the bulk of the passage. Just start in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. There's the command. Here's all the sweetness from the past. I also became as you were. That's how I take that. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first back then. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. But, here's the sweetness, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of that sweetness? What he calls your blessedness. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You know that what hurts the most when our relationships sour is how sweet it was before they soured. 
And that's the case here with Paul, as he recounts just how sweet their relationship was. That's what makes it so painful to him that it's not like that anymore. King David himself in the Old Testament was no stranger to relationships souring, in his case, even betrayal. The 55th Psalm has these words from David, and he pretty well captures why it's painful. For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. That's fine. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. I didn't put sweet in there. That's in there. Sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. That's the pain of it. It was so sweet. It became so sour. And David, of course, was just a shadow. A shadow that was cast by the greater David who would come so long later, who himself was no stranger to the souring of relationships, even betrayal. The most famous case of all history being one of the twelve whom he himself had chosen, but he said was a devil and betrayed him with a kiss. And if you read that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas comes up to him, after three years of close fellowship with Jesus and the other disciples, if you read that as Jesus impassionately simply accepting this is how things have to be, no emotion, I don't think you're reading that correctly. Even in the question that Jesus asked to Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I think there's emotion involved in this. For Jesus to be as human as we are, what in your life has hurt you more than betrayal or a soured relationship? And Jesus experienced that. Now, the famous Italian poet Dante, who is not a writer of Scripture, and we're glad because he's got some strange ideas, but 700 years ago, if you've ever read The Inferno in his Divine Comedy, you'll remember that he reserves the lowest part of his imagined inferno for those who betray. It's the very bottom of hell for him. Even though he's not probably right about that, at the same time we understand there is a great pain in betrayal. And the reason for that is because for any relationship to become sour, it has to be sweet first. Nobody breaks your trust unless they have your trust. That's why it hurts, right? Paul experienced at least the souring of relationship with the Galatians. I don't know if we could call this a kind of betrayal, but they had turned against him. That's the context of this passage. Now, with that understanding, look here at all of the sweetness that was in their past relationship. The sweeter it is back then, the more it hurts now, which is why Paul asks questions and feels emotion in our passage. But look at just all the ingredients that made up the sweetness of the relationship in the past. On Paul's end, right when you start in verse 12, he says, I also have become as you are. And there's not a verb there, actually, so we have to supply it. I think what he's saying here is, I became in the past what you were. Referring to, you remember, Paul's main strategy when he shared the gospel. He never, or to our knowledge, just shared the gospel. He shared himself. And so when he would come into an area full of Gentiles like Galatia was, then Paul would conform his behavior 
to the Gentiles. Not with moral compromise, not with sinning, not with the worship of idols, none of that kind of stuff, but a kind of contextualizing, if you use that term rightly, a kind of adopting some of the manners of the Gentiles and putting aside some of his Jewish particularities that would be offensive to them that were not inherently moral. So he would, though he was a Jew, go in and eat with Gentiles. That was not common practice of the Jewish people. You remember that because when Peter came, he didn't do it because <laughs> he was scared of the Jews. So Paul became what they were. He gave them not just the gospel, he gave them himself. He gave up his default settings of what he preferred, what was natural to him, what he grew up with as a good Jew, so that he could reach into their lives, so he could enter into their lives and bring them the gospel. That was part of his affection for them. He became what they were. That's why he says, now become what I am. Believe what I believe here and share this affection that I feel. He conformed to them. This was his, I have become all things to all people, that by any means I may save some, from his letter to the Corinthians. So Paul was leaning toward the Galatians back then. That was part of the sweetness. And in his leaning toward them, we see in verse 13, he preached the gospel to them, even though he was sick. I preached the gospel to you at first, meaning I'm talking about what happened in the past, way back then. They had a history, and it was a history of affection. It was a history of him loving them, becoming like them, sharing the gospel with them. And it was reciprocal. It was shared by the Galatians. The Galatians at that time also felt a deep affection for Paul. Now, Paul doesn't tell us in this passage exactly the nature of the sickness that he experienced. He just doesn't tell us. And anytime Paul doesn't tell us something, the commentators go crazy making stuff up and throwing out guesses, which is fine. We can guess, but we're not told. What we are told in this passage is whatever the sickness was, quote, it was because of that sickness, that bodily ailment, that he preached the gospel to them. Doesn't that make you so curious what that was? <laughs> okay, I will satisfy that with just a few little guesses for you, but you have to remember they're guesses, okay? To me, the best guess about this bodily ailment was put forward by one Bible thinker who said perhaps it was malaria. Because if you remember Paul's first missionary journey, which I think is when he came to the Galatians, right before he got to what we'd consider South Galatia, he was in Pamphylia, which is just down by the coast of the Mediterranean. It's low in elevation. Places that are low near a coast tend to be swampy. Malaria is often prominent in those areas. If Paul in Pamphylia had gotten malaria, if that was his bodily ailment, this passage would make sense because he would have sought higher elevation. And wouldn't you know it, the nearest highest elevations over there in Galatia. So he would have been escaping the malaria-infested swampiness of Pamphylia, which, by the way, is where John Mark had abandoned him. We can't make stuff up, okay? But maybe, if you see him, we're all getting malaria, maybe that's the time to quit the mission trip. So John Mark heads out. So it could have been that Paul then went up to higher elevation, which was in Galatia. That would make sense of this passage. He said that's why. So he would have arrived with malaria, getting away from the swamps of Pamphylia up to that higher elevation, and that's why he preaches the gospel to them. See, does that satisfy curiosity? Sorry, it could be, could not be. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know what it is. Another guess 
has been that Paul actually had an eyeball problem because, of course, in the passage itself, he said, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyeballs and given that to me. I think that's just an expression. It is true that at the end of Galatians, we'll see that Paul says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you, which some have taken to be, he's writing big letters because he can't see. <laughs> and that's possible. That's so possible. And maybe not, you know? I don't know. We don't know if it is that way. It really doesn't matter if you figure it out. The point is he had a bodily ailment. And it was because of that bodily ailment. If it was the eyes, probably he was going to pass through Galatia. But if you can't see, you can't travel. So you just stay put. You preach the gospel. Whatever the sickness might have been, it's clear that. It could have been as well. What he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 12 is thorn in the flesh could have been this bodily ailment. And he was persecuted so viciously, it could have been any bodily problem. He probably had a lot of them, given how badly he'd been treated physically. The point of our text, though, is not really about the sickness. The point is that the Galatians at that time had a lot of reason to not feel affection for Paul because of his sickness. There are at least two reasons for this. One is... In the ancient world, still today a little bit, but in the ancient world especially, when somebody was afflicted physically, the default thought was judgment by God or the gods. We saw this even in Jesus' own followers, the disciples, when they come across that blind man in John chapter 9, and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? <laughs> it's not even a question of did someone sin, it's just who did it? Because that was the default. Jesus said, you're wrong. But that was the way they thought in the ancient world. That was true not just of the Jewish people. That was true of Gentiles. When Paul was bitten by a snake around Gentiles, they said, oh, justice found him, meaning the gods pursued him. This man must be a murderer. So Paul shows up to preach a life-changing message, supposedly from God Almighty above, and he's sick with malaria, eye problem, or something else. This would give them a reason to despise his message. There would be another reason to despise his message, though, because he was sick. Being sick, he would be a burden to them, probably a financial burden to them. You might remember that Paul, when he sh traveled and shared the gospel, was bivocational, meaning he was sharing the gospel and he was working. His profession was a tent maker. So he would travel make tents, sell them, and that's how he supported his ministry, along with donations, but he depended often on his own work. Why did he do that? Here's 1 Thessalonians 2.9 to explain. He says, you remember, Thessalonians, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, making those tents, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul worked with his hands so he wouldn't be a financial burden on the people he shared the gospel with. But what happens when you can't work with your hands? Because you can't see or you have malaria. Then you become a burden. That's Paul's word. Then he feels like he is a burden to them, to the Galatians. That's why he would have expected them to reject him. Say, so we got enough to pay for this random preacher coming through. Now we got to support him. Verse 14 says they received him, which might have involved financially supporting him as well. They received him despite that. Now, of course, we know that Paul providing them with the gospel is certainly worth 
them paying for him to do that. And Paul makes that point in some of his letters. But every pastor or missionary who's ever been laid up by sickness knows that feeling of, I don't want to be a burden. <laughs> and certainly that's what Paul is feeling here. We want to unburden other people. I don't want to be the burden. And yet that's what Paul probably experienced back then. But this is the amazing thing. This is the sweetness of that past relationship. Although the Galatians had reasons to reject Paul because he was so sick and frail, instead, verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you, meaning it tempted you to reject me, you didn't. You didn't scorn or despise me. You didn't spit in my direction. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. The point of that line is to show you there was an extreme of affection between Paul and the Galatians. Not ordinary stuff, not polite acquaintances in the hallway, but this was rather extreme. They having very little reason to have affection for Paul since he's so sick and a burden. And yet they not only have affection, but they receive him as if he's a messenger from heaven, an angel of God, or even as if he is Christ Jesus himself. It just means a very warm welcome. Verse 15 actually shows you just how extreme their affection was. I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I know that we can do cornea transplants, but even today, no one can do full eyeball transplants. That's why he says, if possible, couldn't do it then either. But the point of that picture is they loved him a lot. They would have done anything. We say we would give you the shirt off our back, which I guess it's not as much love as they had back then because they would give their own eyeballs gouged out, as one commentator has put it. That is the sweetness of their past relationship. I hope you have relationships that look just like that. Would you gouge out your eyeball for somebody? <laughs> Is that too violent? Would you give the shirt off your own back for somebody? Do you have some of those sweet relationships? I hope that you do. Paul had it with the Galatians. Unfortunately, in our passage, it's not the main point. Paul is presenting how sweet their relationship was in the past so that he could make a point about the present, which is that it's not sweet anymore. Now we move from past sweetness to present sourness. You can see this verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? I wish none of us ever had to say that. <laughs> I hope none of us ever have to say that again to anyone ever. But we will because that's just how life is. Even for Christians, this is how life is. It was Paul's experience. Paul was a godly man. This was his experience what then has become of your blessedness? Literally what he's saying there is, where did the blessedness go? It was right here. Remember how we loved each other? And I looked back and it's gone. You've asked that question before. Now, as we talk about this, the present sourness, I do want to give a little caveat because we should never forget, even as we talk about how some relationships do sour in this life for a variety of reasons, we should never forget that many and probably most of your close relationships don't sour. Is that amazing? That's a, that is amazing. It just takes a few of those close ones souring to really get you riled up, to really affect you deeply, and it can start to feel like, oh, my relationships explode and disintegrate. Probably not. So this is no pity party. This is no bitterness on our part. 
Let's remember that God in his mercy preserves and restores many, if not most, of our close relationships. That's, a, that's more amazing in a world like ours than any relationships getting sour. But with that being said, if you haven't already, you have probably, you will experience souring relationships and you will experience them among Christians. It will almost certainly happen. I think about for myself, as I'm contemplating the sourness of Paul and the Galatians, when I was in high school, I had two friends who both came to Christ. I was involved. They came to Christ and they became dear brothers to me. Today, one is a missionary and one is an atheist. That's normal. That's very normal, sadly. Or I think again, when I was in high school, probably the first outside of my own family, very close, impactful mentor I ever had as a Christian, the person who really discipled me, took me under his wing. I remember we were so different from each other. He was older. He was in college. I was a pale rail even then, but he was this ripped Filipino. We were so different. He was outgoing. I was totally shy. He was a little slower thinker. I was fast thinker. We were so different. Unlikely friendship. We became such close friends. Spent so much time together. He introduced me to Christian hip-hop, if that's your thing. But that was impactful in my life, too. We went down to the riverfront, would share the gospel together. He lived with some people still here. This was a close mentor. We went on mission trips together. He impacted my life for good in ways that continue today. So that was then. That was the sweetness of that time. One of the sweetest relationships I've ever had in my life. Today, I don't think I could talk to him if I wanted to. Left his family, left the faith as far as I know, and that's the last I ever heard of him. A souring that takes place. And yeah, that is a painful thing when you've had a close relationship. Actually, as I think about this, I think a lot of the mentors I've had in my life, those relationships have soured. <laughs> so you start to think, do I just pick really bad mentors? No. No, I promise. I pick good mentors. I think it's more just we're in a world filled with pain that's subject to corruption, and this happens. It's not ideal. It shouldn't happen. But this is something that happens. Now, I'm not here talking about when you're the problem ruining all your relationships. Yes, then all your relationships were sour because you're making them sour. That's different. I'm talking about actually what parallels this passage more. When you have relationships that sour because you persevere in holding to what's true. Not because you change, but because others change. You see this for Paul in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul had not changed. Paul was the same, had the same gospel, had the same Christian hope. He was there with the gospel. He preached it to them. They said, we love that close relationship. He leaves preaching the same gospel everywhere else, looks back. They said, hey, we think actually you're wrong, and we don't like your gospel, and we don't like you. <laughs> it's like, okay, because of an outside influence of the Judaizers. That's what made Paul their enemy. Not some weird thing on his end. He didn't sin against them. It's that he spoke the truth to them and continued speaking the truth of the gospel. It just became unpopular once the Judaizers poisoned the well. There's no pity party allowed in situations like this. You're probably thinking in your own life of soured relationships. The reason we don't throw pity parties is because... I mean, let's be honest, I've thrown some pity parties, okay? But the reason that we shouldn't throw pity parties, and we should repent of that quickly, is because look at this passage. That's not what Paul does. He is a man made of flesh and bones like us. 
He's following Jesus Christ. He calls us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Look at Christ. Look at Paul. What does Paul do in this circumstance? He gives us the first command in the letter. It's the first appeal to the Galatians. When relationships get awkward, it's easy to run away from them for all of us. But look at him. He's appealing. He's appealing to them in hope. You don't appeal, become as I am. You don't make that appeal if it's just an impossibility, if it means nothing at all. He's making that appeal because there's some hope for them. He said last week, I may have labored over you in vain. May have. There is hope that remains. So he makes his appeal even though they don't like him. He says, I'm your enemy now from your perspective. But as one of the church fathers said, Christians, we don't have any enemies from our point of view. Because our enemies we love. That's what you do to your friends. So everybody's your friend in that sense. But from the Galatians' point of view, I'm your enemy. No pity party. No running away. An appeal. Remember our sweetness. Become as I am now. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am. Probably there were casualties to the Judaizers. If we could go and see the full story of what happened back then, Paul made this appeal. Did it work? Did the Galatians repent? Did they turn away from the false teaching of the Judaizers and hold fast to the gospel? Are they today in paradise with Christ? I would guess many are and some are not. That's the usual story in life. Many are and some are not. There probably were casualties. Paul didn't have a definite Christian hope that they would become like he is, meaning holding to the true gospel with a heart open in love. He didn't have a definite hope they would do that. Did he have a hopefulness that they would do that? Yes, he did. It's why he made his appeal. That's why he appeals. Paul did not give up on the Galatians. They gave up on Paul. They were done with Paul. They were his enemy. They didn't like Paul. And here is Paul not giving up on them. And the reason that Paul doesn't give up on them, though they're his enemies in some sense, is because he has a hopefulness about what God can do in them at any moment. Paul was the man on the Damascus road intending to put Christians to death. And in the course of a few days, really just a flash of a light out of the sky, his life is turned 180 he knows what it means to see someone in a situation that seems impossible, could never change their mind. If you have family estranged from you, if you have friends, coworkers, bosses, and you think it's impossible, you don't know the person, it could never change. You know who else could never change? Paul could never change. And Paul changed so much that he wrote much of the New Testament. And he carries that around with him so when he's thinking of the Galatians, yes, they're in a bad place. Their relationship is soured. But there is a hopefulness, hopefulness enough to not give up on them, but to appeal to them, to hope for them. You know, John Mark, we said, left in Pamphylia, maybe because of malaria. You know what Paul says about him later? Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for ministry. That relationship changed. Sour can go back to sweet even when it seems impossible because of God's power. Blessedness, your blessedness, it can go away in a relationship. So far you can't see a shadow of it, and then it can come back. You believe that? It can come back. You say, I could never make that come back. Of course, God can make that come back. So may God help us 
to continue holding the truth that Paul holds and with it to take up Paul's hopefulness. So long as there's a God in heaven, so long as the people we're hoping for are alive and breathing, the blessedness can come back.